We are going to pray and get started. We're back in Romans. You know, we ended after verse 16 and 17 of chapter 1, which was the big thesis of Paul's diatribe, where he has this internal dialogue for everyone to see so that he can explain all the, uh, everything he sees going on. Remember we said that the book of Romans is kind of Paul's resume to these Gentiles, these Romans who are going to be hopefully in his mind his new base of ministry. And he goes and gives them the thesis. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And that's his thesis. And then what he's saying is, is you're all equal. We're all, we all need Jesus. We're all at the same place. We can't be ashamed of the gospel. We don't stand on anything except the gospel on the Lord. And so then the rest of the book is him explaining, having kind of this internal dialogue back and forth, proving that this is what he believes in and why it's true. That's where we're going to pick up in verse 18 when we read. But first, I'm going to open us in prayer, okay? Jesus, we thank you for your word. Your word is so good, and it provides a foundation for us. It gives us the things that we need. It's food to us. It's also the framework for us that allows our minds to get organized, our hearts to know you. We experience you so much through these scriptures, and we thank you for the gift of giving us these scriptures. We ask now that you'd help us to understand them more. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand with me as we read in chapter 1. This, by the way, this message actually covers from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through to chapter 3, verse 20. We'll be picking up in, in 21, 321 next week, but I'm not going to read all of that because we'd be here for a while reading this. So I'm just going to read the, end, the rest of chapter 1, but I'm going to be alluding to things in the other chapters. All right, starting in verse 18 of chapter 1. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God or gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the images made to look like mortal men and birds and reptiles. Uh, sorry, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over and the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. And in the same way, the men also abandoned natural relationships with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. 
They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. Evil. They obey, they disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Blessed be God's word. You can have a seat. See what I mean? We needed a joke to start us off. That's some heavy reading, isn't it? Uh, fortunately, I don't have to claim that I made that up. You know, uh, that's, that's just the word of God. Now, uh, what I want to talk about as we, as we talk about this passage, I want to start off just giving us context of the relationship that God has with his kids. In order to understand God and his created kids, the kids who he created, we look at pictures of how parents here and now interact with their children, and it gives us allegory. It shows us pictures of, of how to understand the context of God's relationship with his people. If you have an ad, let me tell you a story. We recently, my, my parents have a place not far from here. Some of you have been there, some of you have, haven't. And they have a whole bunch of woods in the back. And in those woods, I used to play all the time when I was a kid in those woods. And there's a creek that runs through it. It's awesome. You know, it's a lot of fun. It's been a long time since I've been a little kid. And so because of that, the whole woods have grown up. They've overgrown. There's green briar, there's thistle, there's poison everywhere. And you can't get back through there. All the paths are overgrown. So we decided this week, this year, uh, to take on the project of clearing it out. So I made this big path that goes back through the woods and goes back to the creek and runs along the creek. And then we set up a campsite down by the creek and it comes back up over and makes a big loop. We went camping there the other day. This is a side note. There was a deer that was so mad that we were on his spot that in the middle of the night, I looked out and I could see through the screen. He was standing right there, like two feet in front of me, snorting like crazy, <laughs> like all mad at me. And I was like, calm down, dude. You know? And there was, we got up in the morning and walked out of the tent. There was fox crap right outside of our tent. There was a fox that was there. We heard raccoons screaming and going after each other. I'm like, where are we? You know, like I can see the house from here. You know, I'm like, we're about to get taken over, boys. <laughs> Run for cover. Anyway, um, where was I? Yeah. Uh, so now the boys, they run the loop. Well, like I'll let them run through the woods. And there's one spot where we haven't cleared it out. There's like this pile of uh, logs that have fallen over because the tree's getting hit by lightning and stuff. And and we, anyway, it's just like, it's kind of like an obstacle course for them. And I'll time them with a stopwatch and see how fast they can run the loop. Dude, I'll do that all day, you know, <laughs> and just run the energy right out of them. And so they, they, they're, they're always having fun back there, but I'm always trying to teach them about poison ivy because, you know, as fast as you cut that stuff back, it grows right back. As soon as the roots are there, it's crazy. Poison ivy is just tenacious. I don't know. Like that's the fall of man right there. That's the curse, you know. And I get poisoned so bad, so I'm always trying to keep my kids from getting poisoned. So I'm always showing them, this is what it looks like, you know, there's these three leaves, and I'm showing them everything, and I'm constantly showing them. And the other day, we, we were actually, you know, so when they run through there, I, I don't want them to get it. You know, that's the whole point. Well, the other day, Jen was working, I had the day off, I had the boys, we went over to uh, St. Peter's, and we're walking along the creek up there, the trails by the creek, 
If any, if any of you have never been to St. Peter's, you've got to go. It's so cool up there. You know, it's, it's a great place to hang out. Um, and it's, it's just beautiful along the rocks in the creek. I took a pretty decent spill while I was trying to help the kids across the rock, and it was either Evan or me, so I took a, I got a bruise, and I can't show it to you, but it's a big bruise, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, it was, that's just going to go down a whole other story. Anyway, I was showing them, I was trying to show them again, like this is the poison, stay away from the poison, because there's poison all over the place there, and Everywhere we would go, like they're running, doing their own thing. And as soon as I stopped saying it, they stopped thinking about it. And I see them like jumping through the poison. And I'm like, eventually I was just like, you know what? These kids need to get poison ivy. That's what needs to happen. They'll never want it again. I just got to let them get it. I got to quit babying them for a second. And I got to let them, you know, experience poison ivy. So they're running all through the poison ivy. They didn't get it. I don't think my kids get poison ivy. I've been wasting my time. We'll see. Um, anyway. You know how when you're parenting, those of you who are parents know that when you're parenting adolescents, you allow them at times to experience certain measures of the consequences of their decision making. But you don't let them experience the full brunt of that. You, you curb it. You know, you protect them. But at times, you've got to let them experience a little bit so that they know. You know, you're not going to let them jump into an open fire to understand that that's, you know, not the way to deal with it. But there are certain things that you allow to happen. And that's how we deal with adolescents. Things change when kids get older, don't they? We, most of us here, are either parents who have raised kids who are older, or we've at least, our kids who have become older. And we've experienced this. But what happens is, is when a child gets closer to adult age, the parent really has to start letting go. And you begin a process of allowing this child to become independent, to become their own decision maker. In order for that to work, we have to be willing to do something very, very difficult. We have to let them make decisions that will negatively affect their life for the long haul, and that we can't stop it. In ministry, I can't tell you how many times I've had a parent sitting across my desk and just weeping because they're like, I don't understand. I know what my child needs. I love my child. I don't want them to experience the things that I've experienced. I don't want it to get worse. I don't want this to go bad. I'm, I, I'm doing everything I can to help them, but I have no idea how to get them to go down the right path. And in that moment, what do I say to them? I'm like, pray like crazy. Show them that whether or not they're trustworthy, you trust them. And that's a progression. I mean, when a kid's 16, you don't say all of that. You know, when a kid's 18, you're saying a little more of it. By the time they're 21, you're really starting to say it. And there's a growth curve where you're saying more and more independence. But what we understand is, is we have to release in those moments. And that is a brutal thing. And some of us have been the hellions that put our parents through the most fear in those moments, you know. And, and some of us are going to pay for that with our own kids. And, all, you know, that's the, way, that's the way it goes. And the reason is because we're all independent. We all want to make our own decisions. And like we talked about earlier, we celebrate independence today. But when it comes to God, independence is a horrible, horrible thing. You do not want to be independent from God. It's horrible. But the way that God has to deal with His children 
is based on whether or not they want to be dependent or independent. We pray that we will have faith like little children, that he will allow us to be disciplined in minute ways, where we might get a little poison or experience some tough stuff, and we come running back to him, and we depend on him again. And we understand that we never get past being kids with God. We always have to depend on him. We hope that that's where we are. We hope that we don't become big, strong, independent, spiritual adults who don't need God anymore and who will make our own decisions. But what Paul describes in Romans chapter 1 is that that is exactly where we as humans have gone. That we've gotten to a place where we've made up our own mind and we've made our own decision. And when daddy said, here's a wonderful garden for you and you can enjoy it and appreciate it the way you want. I have one rule, don't eat from this tree. I don't know if daddy knows best. And that fruit looks really good. And so daddy, I think that you just don't want me to eat that fruit because you don't want me to be like you and be able to make decisions like you do. Who are you? What are you, God or something? (laughs) And we eat. And we try to become God. And we try to be the masters of our own world. Freedom! That's when we become slaves. That is the day we become slaves. Because what happens is, is we now have to provide for ourselves. We now have to be the ones to figure out how to satisfy our own aching hearts that are empty because the relationship with God has been fractured. And the only thing we know to do to satisfy the aching in our hearts is eat more of that stuff that makes us feel good for a minute. And so we eat more and we eat more and we begin satisfying ourselves with the created things instead of with the creator. The layman's terms of what happens in the mechanics of our sin, it's just like this. It's like a husband who marries a wife and, uh, you know, he, she, she takes care of a lot of stuff at home. She doesn't work. She takes care of a lot of stuff at home. He ends up really appreciating all the stuff that she does at home, but he wants the stuff at home more than he wants her after a while. He wants stuff done a certain way, the house kept a certain while, and if he wants that more than he wants her, then something switched. In the same way, if a woman marries a man and he's bringing home the bacon, so to speak, you know, after a while, what if she wants the material things and the gifts and the security more than she wants the man? Then things have switched and things have gotten inappropriate. God created this world in all of its beauty, in all of its splendor, and he placed us, he created us and placed us as the crown jewel of his creation. And he gave us the entirety of the creation to enjoy. And he gave us the responsibility of taking care of the creation. And at the end of it, he asked one basic thing, that we love the Lord our God with our heart, our soul, and our strength. Instead, we like the gifts more than we like the giver. And we turned and liked the fruit that he told us not to eat. So instead of trusting him in our minds, we trust our own minds. Instead of loving him, we love the fruit. We were created, that was in layman's terms, there's a little more technical terms that we're going to talk about for a second. We were created with a heart, a soul, and strength, or a spirit, a soul, a spirit, a mind, and a body. We talk about it in your personal practices uh, book. We quote the the passage of scripture in in, uh, in page one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. We parallel heart, soul, and strength with the up, the in, and the out, what part of us connects directly 
with God. The part that goes up, what part is that? Our heart, their spirit, same thing. Biblical literature, they'll use those words interchangeably all over the place. And they flip them around and use them in all sorts of weird ways. Different authors use it in different ways. But the heart, the spirit, that's the part that connects directly with God. We're told in Romans 8, his spirit communicates with our spirit that we are children of God. We're told that in in Thessalonians, may God himself sanctify you through and through. May your whole heart, may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless until the day of Jesus. With our heart, we're told God is spirit. And those of us who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Our hearts, our spirits, directly connect with God. There's a direct connection. He created us spiritual beings so that we can interact with him in ways that other beings cannot interact with him because he gave us a spirit. He also gave us a body. Our body is the physical thing, like the material world that we live in. Don't start singing Madonna when I said material world. Um, I, bet I shouldn't even said that. What in the world? <laughs> that, I, um, I, was, I was out with, Josh and I were out praying the other day. Uh, Josh Hostetter, Josh Boytwork and I were out praying, and we, we went and grabbed some Dunkin' Donuts afterwards. This is before work, and there was this song playing in the background, and it was like, it was all 80s music. And we're sitting there trying to play Name That Tune. And none of us could get any of it. And Josh was like, man, this song sounds so much like Madonna. And then by the end, he's like, wait a minute, this is Madonna. And it was material world. So anyway, it's on my head. Anyway, man, a lot of like kind of rabbit trails today, isn't it? So <laughs> let's, yeah, let's keep moving. Yeah. Where was I? So we have a body. And our body is created the physical part of us that's created in this physical world what we see of each other is the body the senses that we experience this world with we experience them with our body our eyes see the creation our ears hear the creation our nose smells the creation all of these things are physical things they're not eternal they're temporal they'll be gone someday we won't smell those smells someday we won't see those sights they'll be gone it's the physical part of us Right? That's our body. In between the body and the spirit that connects directly with God is our mind, our soul. The stuff that's deeper than just the exterior flesh, but not still our eternal spirit that connects directly with God. It's what forms our theology. And it's the bridge between the two. It really helps us understand how God, who we relate to spiritually, and the world that we relate to physically, how they connect. It's the mind that helps us bridge that gap. Now this is technically what happens when we begin to sin. We start taking our our mind, starts taking our cues from the wrong place. You see, what happens is, is we got depraved. We were created with a pure heart, a pure mind, and a pure body. But all of them fell apart when we chose to start going the wrong way. And but what we're told, what Paul tells us here, is we started going after the cravings of our flesh. Because when we started feeling empty because we were separated from God, the easy thing to find to satisfy us is the thing that we can see, hear, feel, touch. And so in Philippians it says that those who are enemies of the cross, are those, their, their God is their stomach and their glory is their shame. Why does he say their God is their stomach? Because the most easy way to quickly satisfy ourselves is what? To eat. It's why Adam and Eve ate 
from the tree. It's why sometimes people use food as comfort. It's why food is just the most basic way to abuse our physical desires. Right? If we overeat, overindulge, it's just a basic way of going after the physical desire more than the spiritual one, of not having self-discipline. But that's just one little tip of the iceberg, right? I mean, the way that we worship the created things instead of the creator gets much more complicated than that, right? Much more complicated. I mean, even just the physical, like, stomach desires. What, what can happen with alcohol and narcotics is far more exotic than what can happen through food, you know? And so it feels satisfactory on a much bigger level. But that's just still the physical aching of what tantalizes our stomach. How about this? What do you think is the closest experience we can have to love from God that's not love from God? What's the closest thing on this earth that represents love from God? Love from another human, right? He's created us with a spirit. If another person with a spirit loves me, that's a gift from God. I praise God all the time for the fact that I have a wife who loves me. Some of us don't have that, you know, and we grieve that. But I praise God all the time for it. What happens all the time, all over the place, is that we begin to idolize people and the affections of people, the applause of people the sense of, of being lifted up among people, the relationships between you and I, all of our relationships, they're created. They were given to us by the Creator as a gift. And yet so often, people will climb the highest mountain and search for success because they love to be able to look around and sense that people think there's something special. That's a feeling of worshiping a created being rather than worshiping the Creator. Others want to look absolutely beautiful and, and work at an image because if they do, then the eyes of others will be attracted to them. And in that, they begin to worship the created things rather than the creator. There are so many ways that we worship the created things rather than the creator. We like the gift more than the giver. The pride of life, the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh. They're all things that we tend to begin to worship. The mechanics of how it all works out is real simple. At the end of the day, what ends up happening is that all these physical senses are the things we live for. And our hearts, instead of turning toward God in gratefulness and worship, turn toward the flesh and find ways to continually be satisfied. And now our lives are spent trying to satisfy the flesh instead of our Bodies being spent trying to honor God. We are given these bodies as instruments to honor God. And when our hearts are filled with the love of God and deeply devoted to God and worshiping God and grateful to God and connected to Him, then we use these bodies as physical ways of serving God, of blessing other people. But when our hearts turn the other way, what happens is, is we make our hearts serve God the flesh, and the desires of it. And our minds, what we're told in this passage, get completely screwed up. That's where everything goes wrong. 
our theology gets messed up, we begin to justify all sorts of things. And just like in the garden, they, they started scratching their head and the enemy had them spinning when he was like, did God really say don't eat from that tree? Is that what he really said? And did he actually mean this? And you can see the justification process happen over and over again. And as soon as we see something we want with our flesh, and as soon as our hearts turn selfish instead of submissive and worshipful to God, instantly our minds begin to find justification for anything we want to do in order to experience the satisfaction that comes from touching something in the flesh. But it will always leave us empty, and our hearts will always be left empty, and they will be unsatisfied until we become like dependent children again listening to our God and following his framework because what happens is is we can get all big and independent but as soon as we get independent the framework in which we were created to function God's order and God's law it's no longer there and we get incredibly confused and just like an adult child who thinks that they know everything and thinks they know what they want but as soon as they get there and things don't work out they don't know where to stand anymore and they're confused and lost. And we as people have said, God, I appreciate your law. I appreciate your love. That's great and all. But I really want to go over here and do things this way. And as soon as we do it, all of a sudden our minds don't even know and understand what is true or how to make decisions anymore. And we find chaos when it comes to morality and trying to understand what is true, what is not, what is good, what is not. It just gets confusing because we don't have any framework to stand on, because we've stopped being dependent upon the one who actually lays the framework out. Because if we're dependent on him, it means that we can't go and satisfy those fleshly things that we want. We have to submit to him and expect him to be able to satisfy us instead of those things. That's how the mechanics of sin works. Now I want to I explain two last things here about how that affects us today. What's that look like today? How has this affected the church in America today? How has this affected our own theology? There are two things that are hot-button issues when it comes to the church and the world around. In, well, we'll get to that. The, the, uh, there's two issues that are real big issues that I believe we've taken a terrible tact on because instead of being connected to God with our spirits, instead we've tried to, we, we've tried to deal with God on a different level. Now, let me explain. First thing, there's a debate around creation and evolution. Darwinism. Ever since Darwinism, there's been these big discussions across Christianity about whether or not we were created or whether or not we evolved, as if they're absolutely and necessarily mutually exclusive, and you're either in this camp or you're in this camp. Do you realize that there were people who were put to death for thinking that the earth was round? You know that? You know why? Because the, the Bible talks about the four corners of the earth. The four corners of the earth. And so what they said is, if you say that the world's round, you're saying that the scriptures are wrong. And if you're saying the scriptures are wrong, then you're a blasphemer. You've got to be put to death. Did that have the heart of God in it? No. They were trying to defend God with their minds instead of connecting with God with their hearts. And because they were not spiritually connected to God, they felt that they needed to defend their theological system that frankly was uninformed. Do any of us debate the fact that the world's round at this point? No. We understand that scripture differently because we've experienced things in the physical world that have helped shape our minds. But if our minds are submissive to God, 
If our, minds are, if our hearts are submissive to God, connected to God, and unafraid of what physical evidence has to say about it, then what ends up happening is this. I can go and I can say, God, I love you. You're awesome. Your creation, it's spectacular. It's brilliant. It's amazing. I don't understand how this piece of it fits in with all of this, but what I do know is, is when I do understand it, it's going to reveal something awesome about you, and I'm going to worship you like crazy. Instead, what we do, oftentimes as Christians, is we live in complete denial of empirical evidence because we are afraid that if people bring scientific evidence that might challenge a thought process that we had in our theology, then it'll rock our faith. And you know why? Is because we don't know God in our hearts. All we know is a theological system that we're trying to defend. And we think that if that theological system has to shift, then our faith in God has to shift, which is absolutely absurd. We weren't called to know God first with our minds. We were called to know him first with our hearts and our spirits. And if we have a confident and personal relationship with God, you can bring evidence that absolutely rocks my theological world and says, holy cow, man, I never believed that it was possible that the way God created us was like this. I never thought of that possibility. As a matter of fact, I would have said you were a heretic for saying that because it doesn't line up with my understanding of the Scriptures. But the truth is, is that we don't need to defend God. He can defend Himself. He's God. We don't need to defend a theology that we made up about God. All we need to know is we need to submit to God because He's God. We need to worship God because He's God. We need to obey God because He's God. And it's His job to defend Himself or to reveal Himself or whatever. It's my job in my spirit to observe everything He's done in creation and give Him glory for it. So while some people are spending their time trying to defend creationism versus evolution, what we should be doing is looking all over God's creation for all the evidence of how he created the world and then just giving him all sorts of praise and honor and glory because of how spectacular he is. And instead of fighting this little uneducated battle down here where we're trying to gain bits and pieces of knowledge, instead we have a direct line of relationship with God where we can experience creation like no one else can. And the proof of a relationship with God cannot come through empirical, physical evidence. It comes through a heart that is in tune with the living God. And it's the only way. But when we seek to have a religion and a theology instead of knowing our God, then we begin to defend the wrong things. Second thing, last thing, the, way, the other debate the, uh, that is just had, has been grossly misrepresented by the church, and it shows that our hearts have not been in the right place, is how we deal with homosexuality. Let me talk to you about how we deal with homosexuality. This, this passage of scripture makes it absolutely deadpan obvious what God thinks about homosexuality. You can't get around it. There's no apology for it. It is what it is. It says that when we decided to be big bad adults and, and go on our own and not depend on God anymore and do things our own way, he said, I gave them over to the degradation. Their minds started to justify all sorts of things and, and humanity went down every path it was supposed to and it's like the homosexuality thing. It's like a no-brainer. I made this part to fit with this part. But they're so thick and depraved now that just doing simple math about what fits with what doesn't work anymore because that's how much our minds have fallen. And we're that confused. 
But this is how it's been misrepresented. Let me tell you how it's been misrepresented. We, we have this debate about whether or not someone's born with homosexual tendencies, which is an absolutely absurd debate. You know who debates it? Theologians debate it. I want to take theologians and just be like, how in the world should I be listening to you about whether or not a person is born with some gene in their head? The scriptures don't say anything about that. Let the scientists figure that out. Let, let the chemists or let the bio, biologists figure that out. My job is to say what the scriptures say. But the reason that we get into this debate about whether someone's born with that or not is because there's this, there's this big struggle, a political struggle around the whole homosexual thing, you know? And it's been used for political reasons. It's been used for all sorts of stuff. Here's the truth. The truth is, is that the scriptures say that each and every one of us is born with sin. That we have tendencies within us that crave all sorts of inappropriate things. Man, there is so much junk in my heart. You know how many times I want things that are inappropriate? You know how often inside of me I'm born with a desire to care more what people think than what God thinks? You know how much inside of me I want to satisfy the flesh at times and just, you know, live life for me and not for anyone else? Which one of us here is not fully tempted by sin? Which one of us here doesn't have a heart that yearns to do things that are inappropriate? Which one of us here hasn't fallen prey? We're sitting here debating whether or not someone's born with a gene toward a certain kind of sin or not. We're all born with a desire for sin. The biggest problem, the way that the church has misrepresented Christ and misrepresented the scriptures is that what we should be doing is we should be standing up on a pedestal and we should be saying, you see me? I am a liar. I am a sinner. I yearn for all the wrong things in my life. And I desperately need God to change my heart because I have a hard time thinking about anything except myself. And if the basic mantra of Christianity was not, oh, the world should not be doing this, it should be doing this instead. If the basic mantra of Christianity was, I and us and all of us are sinners and we all need Jesus, if that was the basic mantra, then one sin wouldn't stand out against the rest and it wouldn't sound so stinking arrogant for us to pinpoint one sin and say, oh, this is this big heavy sin. Whatever, we're all sinners. And if we're going to go after this one and pin it to a cross, then we better deal with the sin inside of us. I'm not saying that we deny that something is sin. We name it all as sin and we deal with it equally. And if I find out that there's something going on in your life, you know, you've been lying to this person, you've been cheating on this person, then what I should be doing is I should be going and knocking on your door and I should be saying, I love you. Here's the deal. This is the plan that dad set out for us. God set out for us. These are the rules of the house. You want to stay connected to him? You want life to go well? Then please be dependent on him again. Like a little adolescent child. Listen to him. It might not make sense to us, but we're the ones with the screwed up minds. He's the one who's God. Just listen to him and obey him again and choose to believe him. That's, if you're lying, if you're cheating, if you're stealing, if you're boastful, 
In here, it talks about disobeying parents, and it puts it right along with everything else. You know, homosexuality, it's just one among many. And the major problems is that we've defended God, defended God around creation, instead of observing creation and allowing it to lead us to worship. And we've nickel and dimed these little things around sin to determine whether or not someone's predisposed to it instead of admitting that we're all predisposed to sin and getting honest about it and being on the same page. We misrepresent Christ when we try to defend a theological system instead of worshiping our God. He can take care of himself. Let's just observe him. Observe his beauty and worship him. Be honest with one another. Help each other move forward doesn't matter what sin you struggle with. It doesn't matter whether you have an incredible church background or no church background at all. It says here that the Jews and the Greeks were fighting because of the one knew the law, one didn't. Wanted to, and he's just like, none of it. I don't want to hear it. We're at the same spot. We're all depraved. Our minds don't work the way they should. Our hearts are turned towards self instead of toward God. And it's time for us to let go, to depend on God, quit judging the person next to us, and instead begin to worship and honor and love him and help those around us see the truth about how they can do the same. Let's pray. God, these are not comfortable words because there's two big things about them that are tough. First of all is that the group think of our society uh, has gone certain directions. And this passage tells us that it would go certain directions, that we'll be given over to the depravity of our minds and we'll be able to justify whatever. And there are certain things that we don't want to name as sin because we don't want to submit them to you because we want to continue to appreciate them and, and enjoy them. However, the other thing that is difficult is the fact that if we admit the reality of what your word actually says, then we have to re- admit the reality about who we actually are and about the stuff that's within us, and about how our hearts tend to be selfish, and how we have to give up our own fleshly desires. Not because you won't accept us. You already accept us. You say in chapter 2, it's your kindness that has led us to repentance. You say in chapter 8, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You say over and over again that you will love us and accept us, but we have to get to a place where we're honest with you and where we're dependent upon you. And I ask God that you would help us to get real with our theology and our relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I want to invite you to something today in your heart, just in your heart. This piece in your heart where we're supposed to be connecting with God personally, you know, the spirit is supposed to feed the mind and the body. We cannot regenerate our own hearts. They're dark, they're selfish, they're empty, they need God. We don't have the ability to make them good. God never tells us to make them good. What he says in Jeremiah is, I will take out of you your old heart and I'll place in you a new heart. I will give you a new heart. I'll change your heart. If you're at a place where maybe you've just been defending a theological system, but you don't really have a great relationship with God. Maybe you're at a place where you haven't actually had a relationship with God. You don't know what that even means or what it looks like. God promises that if we turn to Him, and if we admit to Him, look, man, I'm lost. 
without you. I can't do this. I need help. Give me the heart I need to worship you again. He's already paid for all the stupid stuff we've done. He's not worried about it anymore. It's a prayer. It starts with a prayer in our spirit that just says, God, I need you. I'm a sinner. I need you to forgive me. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Please give me a new heart. He'll take it from there. Okay? As we're praying, or as we're singing, as we're closing up, just allow the, the prayer to be in your heart. You may have prayed that before. I'll, I pray it every day. God, renew my heart. Restore my heart. Bring me back constantly to being dependent on you. Let's pray that together in our hearts as we sing this song together.